This is episode 287 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms when you join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. If you'd like to try out some of the history you learn about here on our show, consider joining Experience Shakespeare, the membership here at That Shakespeare Life, offering digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. It's the best way to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Learn more at CassidyCash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Nikki Marmory, author of On Wilder Seas. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. They were licensed by the uh, stationer's company to run two printing presses side by side. So I think we can assume that they would have used both, both common presses and they would have had a requisite number of people to work on that, whatever that number is, six, seven, eight, with apprentices. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In the year 1623, close to a decade after William Shakespeare died, the first folio was published, which is a collection of some of Shakespeare's plays selected by his friends and a group of business investors involved in the project. What makes it a folio, as opposed to simply a book, is the way in which it was physically bound. Here today to help us explore the materials used in making the folio, including details about the paper used and the intricate binding, along with how the plays were chosen that were included in the final publication, and what ultimately happened to the copies that were printed is our guest and head of the Printed Heritage Collections at the British Library, Adrian Edwards. Adrian Edwards is an expert in the printing materials of Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as those used for the printing of the first folio. Adrian manages the Printed Heritage Collections Cutorial Team, which is responsible for Western printed books, periodicals, prints, drawings, and ephemera from the mid-15th century through to the year 2000. He has worked at the library for over 25 years in a variety of roles ranging from cataloging early Italian books through to managing references services at the Rare Books and Music Reading Room. He joins us today to share about the first folio as the British Library prepares to release a beautiful slip-covered replica of the first folio in honor of the 400th anniversary of the folio's publication celebrated this month. You can find more information on Adrian as well as the first folio in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Adrian. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. We know that there are several of Shakespeare's plays, like Love's Labors One, Edward III, and Two Noble Kinsmen, which are not in the first folio. Why aren't these plays included as well? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think 
the consensus among the academics that, that come along to the British Library and talk to, talk, talk to us about our copies is that they were collaborations and that the Hemings and Condale, the, the two members of the King's Men acting troupe who were working with the printers, really wanted to try and focus on the plays that they knew that Shakespeare had crafted himself. So that's why we think Pericles isn't there because it was a collaboration with George Wilkins. The, the Two Noble Kinsmen, we think is a collaboration with John Fletcher. And I think that probably applies to some of these other plays as well. Uh, Cardinio, probably a, a collaboration with John Fletcher again. Edward III, probably only a part of it written by Shakespeare. And then Sir Thomas More, where we're on sa- safer ground there because at the British Library, we actually have the only manuscript of this play, Sir Thomas More, and within it, we can see that Shakespeare only contributed to the rewriting of a small portion of that play. So I think that's the reason. But of course, it's more, nothing is straightforward with Shakespeare, is it? It's more complicated than that, because you've got plays like um, Timon of Athens, which we know was a collaboration with Thomas Middleton, yet it is in the first folio. And I think the the consensus around that is that it was on their B list. And because there there was trouble with uh, Troilus and Cressida, which was going to be in the first folio and then wasn't going to be in the first folio, that they pulled in Time of Athens to fill that space. And that's how it got in there. But then, of course, things changed and Troilus and Cressida got published anyway. I don't think we know about Love's Labours 1, but I think there's a strong a strong consensus, it was probably a, a collaboration as well, but we just don't have, have the evidence today. What was the process for physically making the first folio? Was it just one printer who handled the production or who was involved in physically putting this together? Well, we're quite lucky in that we know quite a bit about what went on. The text itself was produced by uh, a father and son, William and Isaac Jaggard. They had a print shop here in London at the Half Eagle and Key, which was on the corner of uh, Aldersgate Street and the Barbican. So in a space that today would be underneath some of the 1970s redevelopment of the Barbican estate. So they had a print shop there. They were licensed by the uh, stationer's company to run two printing presses side by side. So I think we can assume that they would have used both, both common presses and they would have had a requisite number of people to work on that, whatever that number is, six, seven, eight, with apprentices, people doing different aspects of, of printing. Uh, it's, all, it's, it's all quite interesting, really, because William Jaggard was losing his sight. I think he had, had syphilis, and it, either the syphilis or the treatments the syphilis had left to him losing his sight. So his son, Isaac, was the person who oversaw production. And it's actually his name that appears on the title page. But other people would have been involved as well. Yeah, so the plays themselves, the texts themselves are being printed on these two printing presses in the workshop of the Jaggard family. But the exception to that is the the title page portrait. So that's produced with a totally different printing technique. That's a, a copper plate engraving. Uh, you'd need a different set of skills. You'd need a different type of press to produce your, your prints for that. And, and looking at it and thinking at what we have, the, I think the, the, the most likely, likely scenario is 
that that title page, which has the title of the work at the top and the information, the printing information at the bottom, the portrait in the middle, the consensus is that those words would have been printed on the presses in the Isaac, in, by Isaac Jaggard on a printing press, on a common printing press first. And then the sheets of paper taken round to the workshop of Martin Drusout. So Martin Drusout is the artist uh, and printmaker who created the uh, portrait of Shakespeare that we've all come to, to know in the 21st century. And he would have then printed that portrait in, the, in an empty space on those pre-printed pages. Um, the reason why we think he did it in that order is that after printing a few of the portraits, Martin Drusout clearly wasn't happy with what he saw and he adjusted the copper plate engraving. He did some extra etching, creating more, more shadow between the neck and the collar, for example. And But he didn't, paper's expensive, so didn't throw them away and they kept them. And um, there are four surviving versions of the title page portrait that seem to be in this very earliest version. And, and we're very lucky in that we have one at the British Library. So it, look, it looks like that's, that's the order. So that, those are the two processes that are going on. And then those sheets with the portrait sent back to the Jaguard print shop around the corner. So after they've got them in order and compiled and printed, what are the materials that the first folios are actually made from? And how were they originally bound or were they originally bound? Is that something that happened later? Yeah, that's a really good question. One that people, I don't think, ask enough about really. Well, the core, the core material that they're using, using is paper made from linen rags. It's medium quality paper, but that doesn't stop it being very expensive. It's going to be really expensive. It's French. It's coming, it's coming across the channel from France. I think there's a, people generally say that there were probably about 750 copies of the first folio printed. If that's the case, then we're talking about 190,000 sheets of linen rag paper needed to produce this print run of the first folio. That's a colossal commitment, but that's the raw material that they're working with. So yes, how were they sold? Well, in the early 17th century, I think you can buy a book in three different states, three different ways, especially an expensive book. It probably doesn't apply to pamphlets, but expensive books. You can buy the sheets loose, so uh, in this case, it's a folio. So you're talking about a large sheet of paper that's, that's folded once with four pages on each sheet. But unfolded, you could have bought these sheets unfolded, unsewn, sewn completely loose. And you would have had those, you would have found the fact that the book was published by seeing uh, a listing in a catalogue or by seeing a sample in a bookseller. And you would have had the loose sheets sent to your regular bookbinder. And your regular bookbinder already knows the style of your book bindings that you'll have in your private library or wherever it is. And they'll have the tools to be able to do the coat of arms or the decoration that appears on the books in your library. And that way of sending things loose, I think, is very common when books are being sold long distances. Because what you can do is you can very safely and securely put the sheets inside a barrel and they're not going to get damaged. That's one way of doing it, loose sheets. The next way of selling a book is to sell the text block ready folded and sewn. So you take all your sheets, you fold them all up. So in the case of the first folio, 
for most part, you're taking three of these sheets of paper, nesting them inside one another and folding them in half and creating six pages. And then you're sewing those and then you're attaching each of these gatherings of six all the way through, putting your preliminaries, your, your title page and whatever at the front, sewing all that together. So you've got a block of text. You probably put a wrap around it to keep it safe, keep it clean. And that you can have sent to your regular bookbinder or, or wherever. And I suspect for something like the first folio, that's how most copies will have been sold, but not all. And then there's a third way of buying them, which is to buy a copy that's ready bound so that you can just walk away with there and then. Booksellers, they're looking to make money at every level. So they will have some copies ready bound for, for sale and there'll be a premium for that. The booksellers will also be able to range for the books to be bound for you. In the case of the first folio, we're pretty sure there are some there are some bookbinders close by St Paul's Cathedral where many of the books will have been sold. And that yeah, you could have for an extra five shillings or so, you could have had it bound in a very straightforward binding or a bit more money if you wanted something quite fancy. So that that, that I think is the, the the mixture there. But I think most of them would have been sold as an as a text block, ready sold, re- ready, ready folded, ready sewn, but without its hard binding on it. That's that's your choice as the as the purchaser to say what you want. Each folio that survives is different and unique, including each one having different errors from the next one. Why are there such variances in the text of each folio instead of them all being the same? I would expect those kinds of variations from a handwritten copy, but it's surprising to me that when they're all being produced on a printing press, which presumably would have had a set type, that there would be so many variances in what the texts actually say. That's such a good question. Yeah, these are stop press corrections that, that, that you're mentioning there. And we, we've kind of touched on it a bit with, with the copper plate engraving of the portrait of Shakespeare. So when you are printing, somebody is having to read the source text. So in this case, it could be a very rough manuscript, or it could be a scribal manuscript that's been written out very neatly. Or it could be, for some of the plays, it could be an earlier edition, a quarter edition that may have been marked up. But somebody's got to read something and then set it into type. The compositor's got to pick up the right bits of type and reproduce this. It's a skilled job. And we know that there was um, an apprentice compositor working on part of the first folio. And they made a bit of a hash of it at times and were taken off and, and then, then brought back in later on to have another go. Anybody can make mistakes. Even, even um, an experienced compositor can misread what they're setting or they can pick up the type. They're not perhaps not looking at the type when they're picking it up. So if the type has been put back wrong into the wrong box in the wrong case, they may not notice as they're, they're setting the type really quickly. Um, and then there's, there's other things. You, know, you can put a piece of type in upside down. You can do all sorts of things, put, uh, put two in the wrong way around. And unlike today, the proofreading is done as the sheets are coming off the press. Uh, they're spotting mistakes and they're putting them right, but they're not throwing away those sheets because it's too expensive to throw away sheets of paper that have worked out. Been, been, Especially been imported on. French papers. Especially imported French paper, even if it's medium quality, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes, there's lots of things like that. Stop press corrections. But there's also changing editorial decisions. So some of the uh, first folios, uh, unfortunately, none of the ones we've got at the British Library, but some of them show evidence of how the Jaggards and other members of the uh, printing 
call it syndicates, had to change what they were going to include in the volume during the course of production. So this relates pr primarily to Troilus and Cressida, which I mentioned, which you know, was going to be there, then wasn't going to be there, and then was going to be there at the very end, and then they rushed it to include it, but not but really at the very end. And, it, and it, it, as, as, as I'm sure people that have looked at First Folio will realise, Troilus and Cressida, it's not actually in the list of contents. It's not in the catalogue. And so they can vary in that way. This, this thing about is Troilus and Cressida there or not and at what stage? There are some first folios that even have a single page of uh, Romeo and Juliet with a page crossed out by hand. The, those sorts of variances that come around around, around um, the changing editorial decisions are the same. There's also changes around the preliminaries. So the, there are those nine items at the front. So you've got poems, you've got the title page, you've got the, the catalogue, you've got the list of the actors. There's nine of these at the beginning. They haven't all been bound into every volume in the same order. Some, they're not there, perhaps because of subsequent mutilation. Um, the title pages and the uh, poems, Ben Johnson poem, To the Reader, especially are often missing from an otherwise complete first folio. People have taken them out. So that might be mutilation. Somebody wants to frame the, the portrait or whatever. But there are other ways in which that, that, you know, they're just, just different. Yeah, and I think that it's important to understand that the first folio went out of fashion. Um, you can see that throughout the course of the 17th century and the early 18th century, as other editions come out, the second edition comes out, the third in two formats comes out, the fourth edition comes out. And at the beginning of the 18th century, you get these totally new editions of the collected works of Shakespeare that might be in multiple volumes with illustrations and whatever. And the first folio, frankly, feels old fashioned. And so people don't have any qualms about cutting out the portrait of Shakespeare or cutting out a Ben Jonson poem in order to, to frame it, to put it on a wall, for example. And all of that doesn't really change until David Garrick's Shakespeare Jubilee that he runs at Stratford-upon-Avon in 1769, when you start getting people obsessed with trying to collect a first folio in its perfect and original state. And then finally, there is um, the other way in which the copies are all different, is that big thing of evidence of ownership and use. So yeah, we've mentioned bindings. Every copy is going to have a different binding on it. If you find two copies of the first folio with the similar binding, in a way, that's the interesting thing. What's going on there? Why? Has somebody bought two? That, that's the really fascinating thing that, that gets people excited. But there are other things inside. So um, people are signing their copies. They sign their name across the top of the title page very often. And then there's book plates. As you, you get on there, you see some of, some of the copies we've got. I've got numerous book plates put in by different owners. People correct the texts. People cross out rude words. People do all sorts of things to their copies. And they make each one really interesting, which is why so many of the academics, they go on a grand tour, visiting the, the great collections of the world to look at as many first folios as they can in the flesh and, and look at those tiny little differences. Even the red wine stains, people love those. And the doodles, the copy that we have that used to belong to King George III is a totally clean copy until you get to just one page and somebody has drawn a head of what looks like a mid-17th century gentleman and a cannon. Don't know why, don't know what it's about. It's just a little doodle uh, in a little bit of space that was left um, 
in the volume. But that's what people find really interesting. So yeah, there's different ways that each one is is different from the next. You've referenced that you have several, I believe it's five first folios at the British Library in London. And I wonder if you could tell us about where those came from and who used to own them and whether or not they're all complete or have some of the ones the British Library have been mutilated or torn up the way that you've suggested to us. Yeah, so as I say, we're really lucky in that we've got five copies that, that researchers can can examine side by side. As far as the plays are concerned, the 36 plays, um, they are all complete. Where they vary is in those nine preliminary poems and things at the front. So two of them are complete. The other three have one or more of the preliminaries missing. And I would say even the ones that are complete, I think there is evidence that there's been some, what do we call it, perfecting going on. I mean, you think of people like like George III, you might think that the king would be able to have a really perfect first folio. Well, he doesn't. His copy, it was complete apart from the fact it doesn't have the poem to the reader at the beginning by Ben Johnson. And then the title page is made up. So what you've got is uh, three different things glued together. The very t- You've got a title which has been uh, printed new in the beginning of the 19th century, I think. And it's not a forgery because they have spelled out the word and rather than using an ampersand to make it clear that something's going on here. That's been glued to a portrait, which is a portrait in the third state. So it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the usual sort of portrait you see in other copies. And then at the very bottom, the bit that says it was printed in London by Isaac Jaggard and so forth, that's an original first folio from somewhere else. So you've got these three elements being fused together. So that's one copy, George III's copy, which we got in 1828. But yes, the others, um, the earliest one we have is from 1799, we acquired it. It came from a a very reclusive book collector called the Reverend Clayton Mordant Crasher Road. So he he collected all sorts of things. He, He lived in London and lots of his collections found their way into the British Museum, which is you know, British Library's book collections were previously part of the British Museum. That one is missing the page of po- one of the pages of poems and the list of, pri- of uh, principal actors. We got one from Charles Burney in 1818. Now that's really nice. Charles Burney was the brother of the 18th century novelist Fanny Burney, and he was a great collector. He was the chaplain to George III. Come back to him again. But the reason why his his copy is really exciting is that it used to belong to Dr. Samuel Johnson. Unfortunately, he didn't mark it up. Wouldn't it have been lovely if he'd written in it whilst he was working on his dictionary or something? But no, it's not marked up in any way. And that copy also belonged to other famous people. It belonged to various Shakespearean editors and publishers of the past. So uh, Lewis Theobald, Jacob Tonson the Younger, George Stevens, they all owned that first folio that came into Charles Burney's hands and is now at the British Library. That too is missing some bits. It's missing the title page and it's missing Ben Johnson's to the reader. Fourth one, uh, Thomas Grenville. That one we're pretty sure is complete and original. Thomas Grenville was, uh, well, the Grenvilles were a a very uh, influential 
influential family of politicians, prime ministers, and so forth. Thomas Grenville, he he was a politician, but he wasn't a great politician. He was one of the minor Grenvilles. He collected books, and when he died, he gave all his books to the British Museum Library so that one of his younger relatives didn't waste away the collection through gambling, which is what actually happened with most of the rest of Grenville's estate. And then finally, uh, in 1922, we acquired a very special copy, which we call the Clifford Phelps copy. This is one of those four copies worldwide that have the very, very first iteration of the portrait before uh, Martin Drusout adjusts it to try and stop Shakespeare's head looking as if it's floating above the body. And that's the one that the British Library has actually produced a facsimile of, which will be coming out later this year. But the Clifford Phelps copy is interesting in another way in that it's the only one that we know hasn't spent its entire existence in London. We know that it was kept for at least 200 years in the west of England, in rural Gloucestershire. We know that it had a trip to New York. In the early 1920s, there was an aborted attempt to sell it to a collector there, who we think was most probably Henry Clay Folger, whose collections went on to become the foundation of the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington. But a British MP came forward and offered to help the British Museum Library buy it. And so it was rushed back across the Atlantic on a French liner into Le Havre, then brought across the Channel and rushed to London, and the British Museum bought it. So that, that's the fifth one of our copies. Quite a varied mixture. <laughs> One of the British Library first folios was chosen for reproduction as a new facsimile from Rizzoli that will be available November 8th. You alluded to this just a second ago, but could you tell us more about this project and where we can explore this further? Yeah, so uh, what well, we're really, really excited about this. We identified the fact that certainly within Britain, we, we hope um, in, in America as well, there is space in the market for an affordable, high quality facsimile of the first folio, something that someone can buy and take home and turn the pages and get a sense of what it's actually like to handle one of these monumental luxury editions of of Shakespeare's plays. And of course, it's the right time as well, because it's the 400 years since uh, the first folio was first issued back in, we think, November 1623. Yeah, we've chosen that particular one for the reasons I said. It's the one that's got that first state of the portrait in. So you feel like you're getting back to one of the earliest versions of the first folio, one of the first ones that came off the press. So I hesitate to say that because so many of these copies have been mixed and matched over time. But but yeah, there's evidence that some, if not all of this, is one of the first ones to come off the press. So that makes it really exciting. And it's a lovely facsimile. You know, the pages are thick. You get a sense as you turn the pages. It's like handling an original, which you know, so few, so few people are able to do. And the pages, are, you know, they, they reflect the colours of the original and so forth. So it's, it's, yeah, it's lovely. And as you say, it, it's um, being published in the US by Ritzoli and here uh, by British Library Publishing should be available through any any bookstores where you regularly get your books from. Um, I think uh, $135 in the US, £125 if you're shopping shopping in, in Europe. Yeah, Just I'm in really time pissed. for that perfect Christmas present for the Shakespearean that you know. Oh, I think so. And I think it's, you know, it, it's a considered gift. 
don't, you know, get me, don't get me wrong, it's considered a gift, but I think it's affordable for somebody that really loves Shakespeare, somebody that, you know, that studied Shakespeare, someone that's acted Shakespeare. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, I think it'd make a lovely gift. And it's been beautifully bound as well in, in a nice slip case. And there's even a, a, an insert in there with some further information about the history of that particular copy written by uh, one of my colleagues, Tanya Kirk and myself. We'll have links to where you can purchase this copy of the first folio in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stay tuned for the URL for where to find those. Now, Adrian, I know we would love to learn more about the history of the first folio and how it was bound and some of the people that have owned the copies at the British Library. Where would you suggest we begin if we want to explore this history further? Well, I have to promote my own institution, of course. If you go to the British Library website, bl.uk, if you put in first folio, you'll come to various pages, particularly in our discovering literature resources, where there are all sorts of essays and short texts and about the first folio, about Shakespeare, its context, um, based on the materials that, that we have here at the British Library in London. And of course, I'd always also recommend the web pages the Folger Shakespeare Library. Folger Shakespeare Library has the largest collection of folios and folio fragments anywhere. Uh, if you're looking for books, though, if you don't mind me saying, I, I, the three things that I know librarians are busy using in this folio 400 year, Peter Blaney's 1991 booklet, which I, I'm sure lots of people know, the first folio of Shakespeare, is the standard text that all librarians go to. It's such a wonderful text. It's published by the Folger Shakespeare Library. It's very difficult to get in the UK, but it's very easy to find on the, the secondhand book market in the US. And then two books that have been published this year, Emma Smith's Shakespeare First Folio and Chris Lautaris's new book on Shakespeare's book. I mean, they're both excellent. They're great sources that, that we've been using as we've been thinking preparing exhibitions and, and researching for our own publications. We will place links to the British Library as well as the Folgers resources and the books that Adrian mentions today, which you should check out. And Chris Lautaris has actually been on our show to discuss his book, Shakespeare's Book. So we'll link you to that episode so you can hear more about that as well. Adrian, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Yes, absolutely. Yes, well, you absolutely have to work with Shakespeare and the Bible. Well, I'm a reference librarian and a Wikipedia addict. I'm constantly looking things up and indeed uh, constantly making changes in Wikipedia based on access to uh, such a huge collection of fabulous books. I grew up before the internet, so I would therefore like to be able to resume the kind of web surfing I did when I was a youngster. And if you'll let me, I'd like to take a full set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Ideally, it'd have to be the 15th edition of 2010, all 32 volumes if I'm allowed. I know historians point to the 11th edition of 1911 as being the gold standard, but I want the latest information, the latest knowledge, but in a form that I can, you know, tangible, that I can open the volumes and turn the pages and follow cross-references, because that's what I love doing. Because, you know, it, it's going to help me. It's going to remind me of things I used to know that I'm forgetting. And hopefully it might even provide the answers to some of those urgent questions while I'm on my uh, desert island, such as, what is that fruit? Can I eat it? I mean, I think that's essential questions to have answers to. And while I have had guests on the show request an encyclopedia set in the past, you are the first one to 
request a specific edition and year for your encyclopedia set. And I think, of course, we would have to allow you to take the whole collection. Thank you very much. (laughs) Adrian Edwards, thank you so much for joining us here today to take us through the physical history of what it would have been like to see and feel and turn the pages of Shakespeare's first folio. This has been a really neat look at the making of this book, and we're thrilled to talk with you about it today. It's been fun. Thank you very much. If you'd like to see visuals about today's history, including pictures of the first folio from the 17th century and links to the replica version being released by the British Library on November 8th, then be sure to stop by the show notes. Find more history and direct resource links at CassidyCash.com slash episode 287. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 287. To really get your hands on the history we discuss in our show and make your own 16th century Tudor soap balls or play a game like Naughty, which shows up in Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona, then consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Members of Experience Shakespeare get access to a library of hands-on history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Each kit comes with a video tutorial, supply list, and step-by-step instructions to let you complete the activity at home or in your classroom. Each kit coordinates with both Shakespeare's plays and specific episodes of our show so you can hear from the world's leading experts on the topics you're trying out for yourself. Members also get access to our resource library that includes worksheets, lesson plans, maps, diagrams, and so much more. If you're a Shakespeare educator or you just love diving into the 17th century to try out some Shakespeare history for yourself, then sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. Patrons of That Shakespeare Life get 40% off membership at Experience Shakespeare, along with insider access to the making of our show, including over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms. Patrons get to suggest topic ideas, sneak peeks of upcoming guests, and can submit their own questions to be asked during an interview. If you enjoy learning history with us each week and want to play a direct role in supporting the work we do here, then you can sign up to be a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.